So uh, this past weekend, we had our men's retreat down in Washington, North Carolina, and we had a group of guys go down there. And I think we have a collage of pictures that we can show a little bit. Yeah, there's some. Uh, there's a, a group of there, a group of us there, hanging out. Um, we we posed for the picture. We made it look like we like each other. Um, no, we had we had a great time. Hey, but there's one thing I got to tell you about about this men's retreat. The most important thing. You you might think it's the spiritual stuff and relationships and, and building friendships and that kind of stuff. But it's really about the competitions that happen when they're down there. Y'all think I'm joking. You're laughing. Um, no, I, I, am, I am joking. But, but I'm not really. Um, I'm competitive. But what we do as churches, we actually compete against each other in a couple different categories. So we have uh, log throwing. We had axe throwing. And we had a couple of our, of our guys that showed out really well. They also had a cornhole tournament. And you got points. You got paired with a random person. You got points for your church based on how well you placed in those competitions. Now, I can't, I'm trying to remember what happened with the cornhole tournament. If only it had a picture, um, maybe there's a bracket up there or something. Oh, you know, there is a bracket. So you see a lot of people, they were paired randomly. And then um, I don't know how this picture got in here, actually. That's amazing that Lisa had that ready. But if only you could zoom in, but we probably don't have a picture for that. Oh, you can. Um, <clears throat> that's amazing. Again, I don't know how this got there. Uh, right there at the bottom, it says Rob from Velocity, winner. So I just... This is not a humble brag. This is just a straight brag, okay? I'm just, just let, letting you know. So I got paired with, unfortunately, that church restored. They won, so I helped them. Uh, I carried Kevin. I'll just let you know. Uh, I don't, if he watches this, he knows. He knows, he knows how it went. Uh, but we showed up. We, we got there on the board. So, guys, I want to encourage you to be there so we can win the competition because there's a huge belt uh, that, that you get, and we, and we would wear that and that kind of thing. No, actually, the more important thing is we had a great time, great relationships, uh, amazing stuff. So I want to encourage you guys to take, take some time and make sure that that happens and uh, the people in your life to encourage you to, to get out and do that as well. Hey, we are in the sermon series on friendship, and I just want to call something out that maybe I think all of us experience. You ever become friends with somebody that initially you thought was a complete jerk? Um, yeah, okay. Maybe you've been the jerk <laughs> at, at some, some point. You know, you, you got, became friends with a guy who bragged about winning a cornhole tournament that meant nothing. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm pretty sure this is normal behavior, especially for guys. You know, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but for some reason, you initially meet somebody and maybe, maybe they tell a joke that people laugh at a little bit harder than you, or maybe uh, they happen to be a little bit better than you at cornhole, and so you come to the church picnic later and play cornhole because he brought boards, you know, to see if you could beat him, you know, that, that kind of thing. I'm not competitive at all. Um, I, you know, you don't hear guys talking about frenemies either. Like, that's a weird thing. I don't, I don't, understand, I don't understand that kind of thing. But sometimes if, if you get past, like, that initial, that initial kind of experience with that person, sometimes you can find some of your best friends in, in your life. And the reason why that happens, because this has happened to me. I mean, some of my best friends initially, there's one friend in particular that I can remember when I first met him, I just thought he was a complete stuck-up jerk. You know, that, that was my impression of him. And now we're great friends we love each other. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's good stuff. But when that kind of stuff happens, what, really, what we really need to do, instead of focusing so much on the other person, is we really kind of need to look introspectively at our own self. Like, are, are, we, just being, are we just being envious? Are we just being jealous? Like, what, what's going on in our own hearts, and our own minds, that it's affecting our perception of that person? In that moment, is our perception really, really reality in the way that we're thinking and treating that person in our, in our head? Sometimes we just have this feeling of comparison or competition with other people that when left unchecked, 
It will keep us from friendship. You know, so many times people on social media will follow other people and they see this idyllic life that's presented and you just kind of look at them and, you know, the whole familiarity breeds contempt kind of thing. And you oh man, everything's perfect. They're always on this perfect vacation. They always have these post photos. Life is, is always, always amazing. And so you build up contempt for that person and create narratives in your head that in your perception creates a reality that might not be all that real. And sometimes we just find ourselves in direct competition with one another, and, and that's okay too. Uh, the NBA Finals are on right now, and so there's a lot of back and forth. I hope the Nuggets beat the Lakers. Uh, I'll just go ahead and, and say that right, right now. That's, that's the only thing I care about at this point. I'm just excited the Spurs got the number one pick in the draft. And I, was, I know none of you care about the Spurs. That's all right. You know, they're an amazing, amazing team. Uh, but sometimes you find, you find yourselves in direct competition. And there's nothing inherently wrong with competition. It's just what we do with it afterwards. And so some of, the guys, some of those guys are like, you know, they're lifelong enemies after they, after they play a game. Some of those guys are hugging or hanging out afterwards. Some of the greatest relationships we find, you know, happen as a result of people who are in competition that still become friends. So we got Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, for example. I mean, those guys became, I mean, bitter, I mean, even in college, they were rivals against each other. Bittle, bitter, bittle? bitter rivals, you know, between the Celtics and Lakers. I mean, classic basketball moments that happened there. But these guys became best friends. Then you've got other classic examples that aren't even necessarily sports related. For example, you got Zach and Slater from Saved by the Bell. You know, good classic, you know, all-American, you know, example uh, of, of friendship out of rivalry. And then, and then, you know, the best example I can think of would be, of course, Jim and Dwight from The Office. And all the, y'all need to watch The Office more. I don't, I don't know what's going on with that reaction. In all these types of stories, all these types of relationships, if pride and ego are left in the way, it ruins the potential for friendships to develop. And some of the people that we find ourselves competing against, comparing ourselves against in life, are the ones that have similarities we would enjoy if ego and what we want only for ourselves was out of the equation. In fact, in most situations in which we find ourselves competing, we'd be better off if we developed friendships with the people that we're competing against because it creates a better experience. It makes us better. It creates better results, whether it's sports or business or friendships or frenemies, or whatever the thing is, uh, because we are actually better off together than we are separately. There is a documentary on Netflix that after the church picnic, this is what you need to do. You need to drop everything, whatever you have planned after the church picnic, you need to go home, get on Netflix, and watch The Speed Cubers. Okay, it's a 45-minute documentary about people who solves, solve Rubik, Rubik's Cubes really fast. And I know you're, what you're thinking. You're thinking, no way. That sounds terrible. Rubik's Cube? You know, what in the world? This is, this is the best short documentary you're going to find on the internet, the Speed Cubers. It's about these two guys, Max Park and Felix Zemdegs, that become, they are Rubik's Cube solving champions. And um, I, I'm just going to tell you the story of, of their story is just is incredible. It's, it's amazing. I don't even know how to solve a Rubik's Cube. I've never done it before in my life. I don't care to ever. It's, it's not something that I'm worried about. But the relationship that develops between these two competitors is just amazing. It just so happens that uh, Max Park has autism, 
And Felix Zemdegs is this incredibly, you know, um, gifted, talented, well-accomplished speedcuber that Max just wants to be like. And it's an incredible story of their relationship. Uh, Max starts breaking all of Felix's uh, records. And, and from that, you could think, you know, Felix is going to, oh, there's going to be this bitter, bitter rivalry. But instead of that, a pretty cool friendship develops. And there's this ancient wisdom for why and how this takes place in our lives. and can take place a lot more often than it really does. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4 says this. I saw that all toil, and this is Solomon writing observational wisdom thousands of years ago. I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I really like how the, um, the NET uh, phrases this. I considered all the skillful work that is done. Surely it is nothing more than competition between one person and another. This is profitless, like chasing the wind. That's not the way that we think about competition. We think about, well, who can come out on top so they can profit more than everybody else? But really, it's profitless when that's all we care about. If achievement and profit are based on pride, ego, and rivalry with others, nothing we, will, we acquire will be enough. There's always going to be someone better, someone who's more talented, somebody who works harder. You could win some accolades along the way, but it's going to leave you feeling empty when you have no friends to share those things with, which in turn becomes a lack of contentment and lack of joy, because at some point you're going to stop winning, because you can't sustain that throughout the course of your entire life. And we've talked about this, we started this off last week, and we talked about how we're more separated than ever in relationship. We're more lonely than ever. It's because we don't realize what we're mixing out on. We're committing ourselves to friendship less and less within our culture. And sometimes we get caught up in that as people in the church. And so what's the solution to our loneliness epidemic? It's not growing a larger circle of acquaintances. It's not better social media platforms. It's not more motivational YouTube videos. It's ancient wisdom from Scripture. The way that we are better together is that we have friendships that are not contingent upon one, another, one another's ability to maintain and provide for the other, but it's on God's infinite divine provision for each of us together. And so this is the bi biblical definition of friendship that we're working from, that friendship is choosing to show someone how valuable they are by sacrificing and caring for them the way that Jesus does. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what it looks like to share this gift of friendship with, with others. The observational wisdom from Ecclesiastes 4 points out that when we aren't sharing our gifts or giftedness with others, we're competing with envy in such a way that undermines what we really want. Uh, so we're going to read the reading further down in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. If we're ruled by constant striving, or in other words, the word I'm using you know, for the sermon is competition, we'll find that when we don't win, we don't have anyone there to pick us back up. And when we do win, there won't be anyone there to enjoy it with. And this is the default in our culture, especially for men. This is, this is how we operate. This is how we're taught to operate. This is what's modeled for us in our culture. We rise or fall on our own versus building ourselves up together. It's like, you, you do you. You're independent. You're free. You can do and be whatever you want. Good luck with that. That's how our culture operates. This is not how God has designed or wired us to live. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Solomon continues his observation of how people move through life with or without friendship. And he says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return or can reap more benefit for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other, their companion, up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them 
up. Introduce a couple words that are, are not in the NIV, but are part of the text as we read that. Another word for friend is companion. You know, somebody that is complimentary to us, somebody that we spend a lot of time with, somebody that we uh, go along life with, we travel with them in our lives. This is someone that we cooperate with in order to accomplish shared goals and values. And when we do this, what we do is of exponentially greater benefit. And this isn't just an idea. So, so sometimes we, we talk about things in terms of, hey, this is what scripture has to say, this is God's wisdom for us, and this is what he wants to know and understand. But sometimes I get like we're not always convinced. Okay, well, this isn't a book that was written a long time ago. But this proves out from the data as well. There are plenty of studies done about this. There are plenty of statistics. You can look those up on your own, on your own if you want. But, but just like to let you know, um, individuals, for example, who work in collaborative settings at work are more than 50% more effective at completing tasks than those who work independently. I mean, most of the time when we talk about productivity and what we want to achieve, we only think about our work. But this proves out in so many other areas in life as well. We're, we're, just, we're just better when we're together, in particular when we're working together. We, we achieve and accomplish things more. Not that that's in itself the only goal, but that our quality of life as we experience those things together is better. You can be competitive without being individualistic, in other words. Jealousy, envy, climbing the corporate louder, shouting the loudest, seeking out the most attention. These are the things that create the type of competition that erodes cooperation. You see this in sports all the time. You see teams who build up a bunch of talent, a bunch of individuals. Maybe a good example would be the Lakers, for example. You know, individually, a lot of guys talented, but they don't play well as a team. And then you take a team like, I don't know, uh, the Spurs are the ones who really have given the example of how this works for success, just to, bring, just to, just to let you know. Um, but like the Nuggets play much better as a team. Their ball movement, the way that they move, the way that they communicate is much better. Well, they're 3-0, and right? Chip's a big Nuggets fan, so we're, we're, excited for, we're excited for Chip. In the workplace, you know, someone who established their own ego ahead of the task or mission, like they might be successful for a while, but we've all seen them fall pretty hard at some point when everybody kind of realizes they don't want to put up with their stuff. You know, it happens in the family with sibling rivalries. Maybe you've had parents who, you know, pitted you against another sibling, those kinds of things, and it just kind of erodes um, your, your family and, and the togetherness that you're meant to share. It has more to do with what our competitive efforts are being put toward. You know, are they, putting toward, uh, are they being put toward selfish ambition and vain conceit or the motivation of doing what we do toward God's glory and for the benefit of others? That's how we're meant to share our giftedness with each other. Then it's not just about beating the competition, but about working towards something greater that can't happen without cooperation. Cooperation moves us from being just competitors to being coworkers. For us coming together and working towards something that's bigger and more important than just ourselves. I get into competition with friends all the time. Not against competition. I'm competitive. I want to win every single time. And, and when I get into competition with my friends, you really don't want to lose because we always put something on it. Um, some of those things I probably can't mention, you know, the things that you have to, if you lose, you know, this is, this is what you're going to have to do. It involves doing something pretty, pretty, uh, pretty embarrassing. But as much as I want to kick their tails every single time, I understand it's not quite about that. Yeah, we brag with, with each other, but it's about building up our camaraderie and our friendship as well. 
The friendly rivalry isn't about establishing dominance and hierarchy, but to share our giftedness, which happens through affectionate care and self-sacrificial love for one another's joy. You can't be a winner if nobody else wants to play with you, if nobody wants to be around you. People are just going to take their ball and go home. Human life, um, this, this is another, another study and, and observation. Think, think about it this way. Uh, human life is wrought through with working with others. Even a fiercely competitive basketball game is also a collaboration in which both sides must adhere to implicit and explicit strict rules. Right? I mean, if the other team isn't going to play or they aren't going to play by the rules, then you don't have a game. So the, the competition isn't there um, uh, anymore. Here, here's a great example from history in World War I. Soldiers on opposing sides of trench warfare in World War I cooperated so much, such as holding fire at dinner time, that generals kept realigning troops. I mean, there's something about, especially when you're involved in something that shouldn't exist in the first place, and people figure out a way to, to cooperate and survive and benefit from that together. Even in ways we don't expect, thinking of our relationships with others as coworkers, and not, not just in our job, not just in our career, provides opportunities for friendship in ways that are more important than the bottom line. There's a great example of this in Scripture, and so we're going to look at that in Acts chapter 18. So if you have Bibles with you this morning, we're going to read through a few, uh, several verses of that, and then I'm going to point out very specific things that we do to move from just being competitors in life and comparing ourselves with other people to cooperating, being co-workers and how God has designed and created us to be. And this is Acts chapter 24. It involves a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, so husband and wife, and a guy named Apollos. And Apollos is a guy who's been uh, going around, he's been teaching about Jesus, he's been doing an amazing job, but he's not quite right on some finer details. And Aquila and Priscilla um, approach Apollos, who could be their competition, but he comes, becomes something much more because of how they approach him. Anyway, let, let's read the text and you'll see what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. There's so many different ways. I, I, we read stories like this, and, and for me, it's like, okay, this is the thing that happened, right? This is just a retelling in Acts. Luke is just saying, hey, this is how the church progressed and how things went. But things would not have gone this way if Aquila and Priscilla did not approach Apollos in the way that he did. And, and just to call, kind of call this out, this is not the normal approach for, how, for, for what is modeled for us in our culture. This is not normally how people interact with each other when there's disagreement or when there's competition or there's things going on. And instead of us reading this story, if, if we just kind of put this in any kind of normal story that happens in most of our lives every day, the way, things that we observe in our culture, we wouldn't have this conclusion where Aquila and Priscilla are working together with Apollos. We would 
see the beginning of a bitter, bitter rivalry instead of a co-work, co-workers who are cooperating together for the sake of the gospel. And so here's how, here's how this happens. Um, Apollos is well-spoken. He's intelligent. He's on their turf. He's, he's not quite getting everything right. And here's what Aquila and Priscilla do to move from competition with Apollos to cooperating co-workers. The first thing that they do is they pull him aside privately. Now, it, they could have very well, it, it would have been culturally appropriate, for example, for them to um, just um, confront him in the synagogue. So here's a guy who's teaching out in public, and things were a little bit different than they are now. You know, see a bullhorn preacher, and the, the, the approach is not to engage them, you know, publicly even, even then. But they, culturally speaking, it would have been very normal for Aquila and Priscilla just to start openly debating them in front of everyone just to prove their point and prove this guy is, is wrong on these finer points of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But they don't do this with him. They pull him aside privately. This is how the Pharisees treated Jesus. Uh, let's get Jesus in public and let's try to get him to trip up and the, the, you know, those kinds of things. So you, you saw that kind of behavior because um, they weren't actually looking for the relationship with Jesus to improve or understand where he was coming from. And that's kind of the first issue is when all we care about is scoring points for ourselves, with people who already, um, you know, share our confirmation bias with us, um, we don't care about the well-being of the other person. We're not really interested in what happens to them or their life. We don't, we don't care about the fact that they're made in God's image, th- those kinds of things. When we do things publicly like this, we just make it about ourselves. And when people don't want to get together and talk about things privately and engage in relationship with this, it's because they're making it only about themselves. Um, So, like on social media, people do this all the time, where they provide some sort of public criticism just to garner likes from people who already agree with them, and it makes them feel better. You know, you get a little bit of dopamine hit because, oh, look, six people liked what I had to say that was you know, against what this other stupid person, you know, had to say because they said something completely wrong. And we think that we've done something valuable, but we haven't. We haven't fixed anything. We're not interested in the other person. We've just signaled to other people who already agree with us so we can get attention for how right and superior we are. And so they, they go completely, they, they do this completely different cultural thing. They, they're completely countercultural in the fact they say, hey, Apollos, like, we'd like to get together and talk with you. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that they don't just get together and talk with him privately. They invite him into their home. When we set the tone with our hospitality and vulnerability, welcoming people in, um, we set the tone of what we desire for the other person. And that's for their well-being and to be better together. Uh, we tend to want to have deeper associations with people who already agree with us on everything. Jesus modeled something different. He engaged with people. He welcomed them in. He gave his time, his resources to those people because he wanted something deeper and more meaningful for them. And you can't move beyond competition without this important step, without opening yourself up to the person, other person. It's risky, and sometimes it's painful. And that's why sometimes we want to shout people down or say those things at, at a distance and only score points against them instead of actually engaging with them in those things. But this is what Jesus did, does. This is that affectionate care and self-sacrificial love that he models for us. The third thing, third, third thing that they did is they explained to him more adequately um, 
how we speak to one another and how we engage with people, especially when we're comparing ourselves to somebody else, we're in competition with them, we're in disagreement with them, whatever the thing is, um, we don't have to belittle somebody else in order to elevate ourselves. Not, not when we're confident and we're fully sufficient in who God is in our life. When we do those kinds of things, when we feel like we need to um, tear somebody else down to make ourselves feel superior, it says a lot more about us than it does about the other person. It says a lot more about our insecurity than it does about the other person's position. And so they, they could have debated him, which would have been accepted like we talk about it, but they weren't just interested in winning, but engaging. They wanted something for him that was better. And how we approach these things sets the foundation for what we're trying to achieve. Are we trying to win against the other person? Or are we trying to develop a relationship with them? Are we trying to be more like Jesus or like everybody else? Is this cooperation and working together or is it competition and comparison? And here's what happens as a result, which really kind of shows what they were moving towards. And this is in verse 27. They become cheerleaders for his success. The first three steps are really, really the easier things to do. Um, because we can kind of keep that just between us and the other person. But what really helps us move past our ego and our pride is, is can we actually say for this other person that it previously we were in competition with, can we actually care about how this other person is benefited? Do I actually care about their success? That, that is what helps us see if we really want to measure how closely our hearts are becoming informed and being transformed by the renewing of our mind into God's heart for other people, do we actually care that this other person might experience success? Now, for Apollos, they had the shared value and foundation. They, they want success in the gospel because, man, we're all working toward the same thing, and that's, that's to point people to Jesus and God's goodness. They send Apollos out outside of their mentorship. They don't, they don't keep him under their thumb. They're not like, well, we're going to maintain our authority over, over you. They're like, no, we're, we're going to give you the benefit of our blessing to this other church. We're going to gather together with, with the brothers and sisters of this church here, and we're going to send you out. And, and man, be successful. Overshadow us. I mean, later on in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul is having to address the Corinthian church because they were divided over leaders. And they don't say, well, I follow Peter. I follow Paul. I follow Aquila and Priscilla. They say, no, I follow Apollos. You know, so there, Apollos becomes you know, bigger, you know, more popular as a teacher than Aquila and Priscilla. But they didn't care about that. They care about the success of the gospel uh, to come out from their authority and even produce and even surpass them. Um, Apollos doesn't just become this, this person that they teach and correct and, and kind of move on so they can kind of like, oh, I mentored him and his success is because of me. But he becomes a more connected part of the community as a whole. And sharing the giftedness of affectionate care and self-sacrificial love from one another's joy moves us to become those co-working friends. Where, where this is how friendship is developed and continued. It's great that Apollos has a more accurate understanding of baptism. Like, that's, that's incredible. But even more, Apollos is not a lone gunman anymore, but now he's a part of a bigger community. You know, this is the thing that we say about marriage or parenting or anything that's good, that's worth doing, and, and have, you have to work at. You know, it's, it's hard work, but it's good work. It's, it's worth it. The same principle pl applies to friendship. But so, so many times, we don't treat it like this. We just think... 
oh, it's just something that happens. I just happen to come across somebody magically, and then we, you know, become BFFs. Now, that's, that's not how it works. If that's how you've been approaching it, then you've just gotten lucky. <laughs> that, that's, that's, God has blessed you um, with, with good friendship as a result. It takes worth. It, work, it takes intentionality in how we approach people. Um, we work at friendship, um, and we become friends through our work. Remember, friendship is choosing to show someone how valuable they are, valuable they are by sacrificing and caring for them the way Jesus does. There's a pattern modeled here being better together when we are working together. You know, Paul starts this with Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers together, and they met together, and he modeled this for them. And then they modeled this in the life of Apollos. They weren't threatened by him, but instead taught and collaborated with, collaborated with him so they could become co-workers with Christ. Um, so many people, the way that we approach it, it's like, oh, well, this person has a wrong idea, so now I'm threatened by them, and they are the enemy. If Aquila and Priscilla had treated Apollos like this, then like, we'd be reading a completely different story and a completely different result in the life of the early church. But this is not how they approach things. And so what does that mean, what does that mean for us? Like, how do we put these things into practice practically? Um, when, when we feel like we are in competition with somebody and when we're comparing ourselves with another person, we, we've got to feel less threatened. And we've got to be thinking less about ourselves and more about how sufficient God is in our life and what he has given us with and how what we want out of life and what we work towards is something much bigger than just ourselves. Um, even in business, some, some of the best business practices that people participate in are working cooperatively with a rival company. And, and a rising tide raises all, all ships, you, you know, that, that kind of thing. But it's so counterintuitive in the way that we approach and do things. And so my encouragement to you is, is just do less alone. Like instead of feeling threatened about you know, somebody being better than you at a particular project or having, being more skilled, like that's how God has designed us, designed us to be in friendship with each other. And so do less alone. Plenty of people, um, there are plenty of people who take advantage of somebody else's expertise and resources because they're trying to get something out of that person instead of just genuinely want to being, be in relationship with those people. Um, you know, it's really easy for me to, example, for example, to volunteer to help others with their work, uh, but I need to be a lot better about inviting other people into mine uh, because some of that is ego and pride. Like, I want to I be seen as somebody who can do it. And so that's why I invite people in less in, in some of those things. And we, we've got to do less alone. We've got to pick a task that we do alone and invite somebody into it, invite some participation into that. We've got to volunteer with, it could be a team here at church, it could be Velocity Kids, we've got the board out there, or, or somewhere in the community where we intentionally put ourselves in relationship to work alongside with other people in our community. This is how we become friends. We either need to become better at working on friendship or participating in the work of our friends. It doesn't mean I'm going to come along and be a, a, a network engineer for somebody else at their job. Like that, that's, that's, not what we're, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, but our theology of work and how we work together encompasses much more than the task at hand or the bottom line. It's about who, it's about the other person that we're working alongside and how we're honoring them as somebody who's made in God's image and what we're desiring for them in their life. Um, I just want to revisit the speed cubers, Max Park and, and Felix Zemdegs. This is a picture, picture of these guys. 
um, the World Championship, and you'll you'll see this. I don't want to spoil the. I'm not going to spoil the 45-minute documentary that you're probably not going to watch. Um, <laughs> but that would change your life if you do. And I'm just going to say, personal experience. Have a couple tissues with you while you're watching it. Okay, uh, later this afternoon after church picnic. Um, the, the World Championship was ho- hosted in Felix's hometown of Melbourne, Melbourne Australia. And, uh, and Max, Max has been, you know, this whole time he has idolized Felix. And he starts breaking all of Felix's records. And here's this huge pressure tournament. You know, the World Championship is finally hosted in Felix's home. He's got a ton, a ton of pressure on him. And, and Max is part of the problem with that pressure. Because Max has taken all his records. And Felix was the man. I mean, he was, he was number one, you know, before, before that happened. And as things, are, as things are progressing and going along, you, you see what we've talked about modeled through how Felix approaches and treats Max. Because it's not nearly about his results and what happens at this world championship. But the fact that he approaches what he does with Max in such a way that it benefits Max's life as a whole. I'm not going to tell you the results and and, and how things shake out, but one of the phrases that Felix had taught Max and that they share together is a a a sentence, no podium makes us stronger. We're talking about a podium finish. And whether or not they make it to the podium. You know, if you're not first, second, or third, you don't make it to the podium. And I'm not going to tell you who does what or what happens where, you know, that, that kind of thing. But one of the things that early on in Max's career that Felix had taught him is, hey, just because, just because things don't quite happen the way you want, we're, we're in this together. And, and this experience that we didn't necessarily plan for, you know, it will make us stronger because we're approaching this thing together. Next week... Um, you know, we talked about how we're better together. This week, we talked about how working together, how, how we're um, better working together. Um, next week, we're going to talk about how we're better suffering together. And this is that—that that is the most important aspect of friendship that so many people miss. And the development of this friendship through competition, and, and yet they become cooperators and co-workers together and develop this amazing friendship. Um, Max's dad says. I don't think Felix knows how big of an impact he has on Max's life. Because it's never just about the world championship of Rubik's Cube. And some of you are like, yeah, it's never been about that. <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, a win is never going to be enough. A win is never enough for us. There's always going to be another tournament. There's always going to be more striving after the wind. But when we're working together in friendship, we're building something that lasts far beyond our ability to win in life. Something that provides contentment and joy, whether we're enjoying a good return or needing to be held back up. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, ancient wisdom. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, we can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. When we put aside competition, it prepares us to be together in suffering. And these are steps that we cannot skip because we will go through them in life whether we want to or not. And people aren't just there for us when things are terrible. Um, it's great, and we'll talk about that next week. But it starts by setting aside our egos long enough to be with each other now, to champion each, champion each other now, 
And that's what leads to the type of friendship that's there when we really need it. If you fall down alone, you can't get back up. When you're working together toward a common goal, you become more aware of people on a deeper level, and you know that when they fall, you know when they fall and need help and are more prepared to be there and in turn for them to be there for you. And this is what it looks like for us to look at people just a little bit different. Instead of being competitors for resources, we're, we're created to be something much better together when we work together in this life. And that's to become deeper and more meaningful friends. We're going to continue to talk about that next week as we talk about what it looks like to suffer together. Let's pray. God, um, this life is awfully lonely without you and without each other. We, we recognize that. We well, we don't always acknowledge that. And, and we're, we're not always willing to put the time and effort into what it looks like to, to not be lonely anymore. And God, that's true about us and our relationship with you. <clears throat> you're, you're ready. You're there. It's, especially as disciples, we are indwelt with your Holy Spirit. You're constantly there, ready to spend time with us and to be there for, for us and with us. And God, we ask that you help us to uh, model our relationships less on how the world approaches things and more how, how your Spirit guides and directs us to approach our relationships with other people. God, we thank you for opportunities to uh, compete in healthy ways, uh, but even more importantly, we thank you for the, the way that, that that competition, that drive for something more can create something even and better and something more la- long-lasting, not just for the, this life, but for the life to come. And God, we ask that you direct our hearts and minds toward, towards those kinds of relationships together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.